Um, if you're here this morning and you've got young kids with you, uh, we're going to be going through 2 Samuel chapter 13. And uh, if you're a parent, you might want to take a glance at that real quick. Uh, 2 Samuel 13 is, it is not a chapter you heard in Sunday school. Uh, it is uh, a very mature content. And if you look at that passage and if you see things in there that you prefer your child not to hear from me, then now would be a good time to, to put them into kid life or big life downstairs, okay? Um, and we've made arrangements uh, if that's the case for you, all right? Um, with that in mind, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, we need you. Desperately need you. You are the Father that we've always needed. Uh, for those of us who have had wonderful earthly fathers, uh, even those, those wonderful fathers fall short of what you provide for us. We desperately need you. Uh, Father, I pray this morning that the words people hear are yours and not mine. I pray that you would keep my emotions out of the way. That this passage is one that evokes much anger. But let us not be like David and get angry but do nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Jackie Hill Perry writes of her relationship with her father. And she says this, my father loved me sometimes. I didn't have the awareness to notice how far removed he was from me. Most children begin to remember nouns after pre-K. All persons, places, and things get their names etched into memory. Then from there, nouns shape what they touch. Daddy, home, love, became a contradiction once I realized how different my world looked from the picture books read to me during school. Dick and Jane had a father at home. Jackie didn't. Dick and Jane had a father to tuck them in. Jackie didn't. Dick and Jane woke up and ate breakfast with their father. Jackie didn't. Jackie's father came to visit. Sometimes he didn't. Jackie's father called. Sometimes he didn't. Becoming sure of his absence came with better clarity during June when my birthday and my father's and Father's Day were on the same date, and neither me or my father said congratulations to one another. After a while, I stopped expecting him to. I figured he'd forgotten my birth date anyway, that it was to him the same as his co-worker's grandchild's first day of school, too irrelevantly impersonal to move him to pleasure. She goes on to describe her molestation when she was six or seven years old by the hands of a teenage boy. She concludes the chapter by saying this, between fatherlessness and sexual abuse, my entire frame of reference for people God made male was built on the experience of their doing. One man's absence taught me men were incapable of loving. Only in short, sporadic flashes of affection would they be able to do what they said they'd do, made up of an inconsistent spine straightened out by everything else but their own flesh and blood. I refuse to believe men could stand for truth ever. The other man <clears throat> was not a real one at all, but while becoming a man, he decided to act out his urges on a child, a girl child whose first introduction to male affection wouldn't be her daddy's hug, but another male's lusts. 
The consequences being that a man's touch sounded like everything unsafe. Sexual abuse for me turned male intimacy into an undignified practice of the male ego to which I would only be a body to conquer and not a person to love. A footnote on that page, she's quick to say that her fatherlessness and her molestation is not what made her gay. She says, they only exaggerated and helped direct the path for what was already there, sin. Fathers matter. We've been studying the second book of Samuel, and and what we've seen in this book is that David as, as a king is in his, all his fallenness and brokenness is pointing to, to the reality that we need a better king. We need a better king. And yet within that, we see David as a father. And, and David is pointing us to a need for a better father. Now, you may have had a wonderful earthly father. I, I have. And yet still our earthly fathers fail to be what God is for us. We need a better father, and and we don't just see this in David's life. You turn back to the beginning pages of of Scripture, and and, and what would have been like if if Cain's father, Adam, hadn't uh, believed the lie in Genesis 3? What would have happened had he had had the moral courage to say no? Uh, What would have happened if, if Ham's father, Noah, had decided not to go get drunk? Uh, what would have happened if, uh, if Abraham hadn't listened to his wife and, 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 and taken matters into his own hands to conceive an heir? What would have happened to Hagar? What would have happened if, if Sipporah hadn't circumcised Moses' boys? What if Moses had heard the responsibility of God and taken it upon himself? Not in a passive role, but in a proactive role. What, what about Gideon? If, if after defeating the Midianites, he didn't uh, take this idol and set it up in his house and lead his family in the worship of it. Or Jephthah, who makes a vow to God in order to win a victory that costs him the life of his daughter. As a father, Eli failed. His sons, as priests, did what was sinful in God's sight. They were supposed to serve God in the service of people, instead they stole from the people. Samuel himself had sons that the, letter, the leaders of Israel came to him and say, your sons are wicked, we want a king. Saul failed, and we saw the last couple of weeks as David Dittenberg walked us through 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David failed. And now we're gonna see the consequences of it. God said to David in that passage, I'm going to raise up evil against you from your own household. One commentator put it this way, even though it was the Lord who raised evil out of David's house, he did not do it by some external force, but by the natural qualities of David and his family. In other words, the consequences that are gonna come upon David as the result of his sin, it's not some external army, it's not some external movement that's happening within, it's, it's something that's gonna spring forth from his own heart and from the hearts of his sons. Now, We saw David fall, we saw him repent, we saw God's grace, and we saw that God removed his guilt. 
But we're going to see a new chapter unfold in, in this story and the consequences of all of that. In our text this morning, we're going to see uh, seven interlocking stories, seven interlocking scenes that form what we call a chiasm. We've talked about that before. Chiasms are the, that, uh, that, that tool used by some authors in order to focus our, our, our attention onto something in particular. And, and the way that it does that is the first thing mirrors the last thing and, and, and so on and so forth. So it reflects what's at the center of all of this. So there's seven different interlocking stories and each story has, has two main characters to it. Um, the thing to, to, to be clear about as we walk through this is, is this word wicked. Well, we are about to see wickedness. Uh, we, are, we are about to see godlessness. So turn with me, 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. Uh, the chapter begins by introducing us to Absalom. All right? uh, Absalom is the first name mentioned, Absalom, son of David, in chapters 13 through 18, the focus is going to be on this man. First uh, Samuel was all about the rise and fall of Saul. Second Samuel 1 through 12 is about the rise and fall of David. Second Samuel 13 through 18 is about the rise and fall of Absalom. Samuel is a tale of three kings, and we're beginning to see the rise of the third king, Absalom. It begins with him. And it says he is a son of David, but he has a sister. And it's, it's notable that Tamar is referred to as the sister of Absalom rather than the daughter of David, which signifies, uh, one, uh, Absalom's role to, to come, but two, the absence of David's role. Uh, it says Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister. So we are introduced to, to Tamar here. And then the, the first interlocking story begins with two characters, and that is Amnon and Jonadab. So Amnon is David's firstborn son. He would be heir to the throne. He would be essentially the crown prince, right? And uh, Amnon uh, has a friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab is, is his cousin. Uh, Jonadab is uh, David's nephew uh, by his older brother, Shemiah. And Jonadab is a smart guy, but not in a good way. Jonadab is one of those guys who uh, he, he wants to rise in, uh, in, in social graces and he wants to be at the center of, of power as much as, as he can and so he will do whatever he can to endear himself to people in, in power. And so he comes to, uh, Amnon notices uh, his, his downcastness and asks him about it and Amnon says, I'm in love with my sister, Tamar. Now we know the difference between love and lust. This is not love, this is lust. He is in lust after 
his brother Absalom's sister, Tamar. Uh, notice that it says, uh, he, he, Amnon thinks it's impossible to do anything to her. To do anything to her. Uh, it, it doesn't say Amnon wants her. It, 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 it's saying he wants to do something to her. In other words, she is an object for him. He can't do anything to her. It also says there that, that she's a virgin. And what essentially this means is that she's of marrying age, but God's pretty clear in Leviticus 18.9, incest is out of the question. It's abominable in God's sight. So Amnon can't do anything to her, is what it says. So Jonadab, being the, the slick guy that he, 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 he is, he says, okay, uh, you pretend to be sick. And when your dad comes in, ask your dad to arrange Tamar to be your nurse. Uh, Jonadab is suggesting that he actually involved David in making this encounter happen. Involving David. Well, uh, he does. We see the next interlocking scene there, which is between Amnon and David. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Uh, I'm sick, I need a nurse, and Tamar is the one that I need. And David complies. There's no questions asked, he complies. And he is actually the one that sends his daughter into this situation. Verse 7. Uh, the, the sequence between David and Tamar and David sent home to Tamar saying go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him David sends his own daughter into this man's clutches and, and what we got to wonder here is why isn't there a question on David's mind we, we, we've been walking through 2 Samuel and we've seen over and over again that David has this unsubmitted part of his heart that, that he's, he, he's obedient to God in so many ways and faithful in so many ways, but there's this one part of his heart when it comes to his relationship with women and many wives that he accumulates, they are objects to him and he refuses to submit that over to God and ultimately that leads to his adultery and his murder of Uriah in chapter 11. That unsubmitted part, David has seen firsthand how gone unchecked has borne this fruitful tree of death. And why is it that David can't look into Amnon and say, is my heart in you? Is, is there anything in me that has been passed on to you? Why do you want Tamar? Well, he doesn't ask. He sends Tamar in, and we see the center part of this, this chiasm here with, with Tamar and Amnon. Verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down and she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes and she took the pan and emptied it out before him but he refused to eat. And Amnon send, said, <clears throat> send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber, chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. 
She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this is wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Back in chapter 11, David is lying on a couch and he gets up and he walks to the roof and he looks out and sees Bathsheba. This is not a coincidence that that Amnon is lying down. This is a a purposeful connection made by the author, like father, like son. Uh, So Tamar comes in to prepare this meal. It probably wasn't baking of bread. There was probably probably a lot quicker than that. Uh, More little translations sort of give us the picture of making like dumplings for him in some way. But she makes this food before him in his presence, and then we see this, send out everyone from me. Doesn't like the, the, the hair on your back of your neck just stand up when you hear that? Send out everyone from me. You know, I take it for granted the places that I can go as a male. You know, that I, I can get on my bike and I can ride down uh, the the bike path miles outside of town, and I'm not worried about my safety. You know, I could go for a hike in a remote part of a state park or something like that. I'm not worried about my safety. I can, I can walk down an alley. I can walk through an unlit parking lot. I sort of take it for granted, and, and I feel secure that, that nothing's going to happen to me. My wife doesn't have that same experience. You know, when, when, when my wife is, is a lot more careful about the places that she goes to when, when she's alone. Uh, she's a lot more aware of her surroundings when she goes to places. She, she's, she's, she's a lot more careful because of this, this real fear of someone overpowering her and being helpless and unable to do anything about it. We look at this passage and it's almost like if we could just yell back through the pages of time, Tamar, run! Get out. She doesn't. Instead, <clears throat> she stays, and Amnon says, Bring the food into the bedroom. She listens and she, she follows him. And instead of eating the food, he reaches out and he takes her, takes hold of her. It's the same word that's used of David when he took Bathsheba. This word took is all over the place. As David pointed out, one of the things that that Samuel said about a king would be he he would be somebody who takes. And I'm not reaching out, he took her in his hands. Meanwhile, he says this come lie with me, my sister. I think Amnon thinks that he's being seductive with his words. 
this same language is, is seen in, in one of the great love stories in, in the Old Testament, the Song of Songs, only there it's not used in an incestuous way. I think he's, he thinks he's being seducted with his mouth making an invitation, but with his hands there is no invitation, there is no choice, there's nowhere to go. And so she asks him not to do this thing. Do not violate me. She knows what's about to happen. And she uses the only weapons she has at her disposal, words. She makes three arguments with him. The first, such a thing is not done in Israel. She's saying, public opinion won't have this. People will will, will know what's happened and, and they will not tolerate this sort of thing. The second thing she says is, is to point to, to the consequences of their futures. Their futures would be ruined. She says, for me, I will be shamed. I will have, have this unbearable shame throughout the rest of my life. For you, people will look at you and call you a fool. You're next in line to be king, and the whole kingdom will think you're foolish rather than a king. And lastly, she says, Ask our Father for my hand. Hoping in this moment, probably hoping just to escape, but maybe to her, being made his wife is better than being raped. He won't listen to her. He doesn't care about the consequences. All he sees is the lust of his heart and nothing else enters in. He would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her. Amnon uses his superior strength to take what he wanted. Randy Alcorn has a website called Eternal Perspective Ministries, and and there he recounts a testimony of one Iranian woman who was heavily abused by her father. And this Iranian woman made the comment, why did God give men such power? Why did God give men such power? It wasn't for this. After he commits this horrible act, Amnon's attitude towards Tamar completely reverses. Amnon hated her, with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. This is reversible. From from lust to rejection, from lie with me to get out. He's had her, and he wants no more of her. One commentator puts it this way, the man or woman driven by lust, is not consumed with a desire for a person, but for a selfish pleasure. Once the pleasure is grasped, the person is discarded. C.S. Lewis put it a lot more bluntly. How much the lustful man cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition. One does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. what she is to Amnon. An object used, now empty, 
to be discarded. The next interlocking story is between Amnon and his servant. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Notice what he calls her, this woman. Back in 2 Samuel 11, David, seeing Bathsheba bathing, calls his servants and said, who's this woman? And his servants attempt to make her human. She's Bathsheba. She has a name. She has a father. She has a husband. She's a person. But David didn't care. This woman. Now, this particular servant doesn't have any kind of regard for her. The, the next interlocking story is, is, is seen here in verse 18. Now, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So this servant put her out and bolted the door after her. He discards her like she's trash and locks the door behind her. Now we see Tamar do something brave. Verse 19, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. She's expressing what has happened to her loudly. She is grieving loudly. Nobody would have been able to, to, to walk past her and not notice what it is that she was expressing. She has been wronged, she has been violated, she has been sinned against, and she's not keeping silent about it. Back in 2006, a woman named Tarana Burke posted on social media in response to a sexual assault, Me Too. 11 years later, that was picked up into hashtag MeToo, which has turned into hundreds of thousands of people being able to voice the sexual abuse that they've encountered. And for a lot of people, that meant that their, their attackers were prosecuted and convicted and punished. That doesn't happen for Tamar. It doesn't happen for Tamar. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. Absalom sees her, clothes torn, ashes, lamenting, crying, knows that she's come from Amnon's house, and he knows what Amnon has done. And then he does the wrong thing. He tells her not to take it to heart. He tells her not to deal with it. He brings her into his house. She lives as a desolate woman. That, that, that meaning is for, for a woman who maybe has been divorced by her husband and discarded. Similar sort of abuse. But here's a woman who she will never marry. She will never have children. And she will live in isolation for the rest of her life because of what Amnon did in a matter of moments. Desolate woman. Now, Amnon tells her not to take it to heart, but we're gonna see Amnon take it to heart in a moment. Verse 21, gotta ask the question, where's dad in all this? 
When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. He was very angry, so he sent Joab to Amnon's house to run him through with a sword. No. He was very angry, so he had the people drag Amnon out of his house and stone him in the street for committing this abominable act. He was very angry, so he took Amnon and he exiled him from Israel, never to come back. Not only would he not be king, but he couldn't even be a citizen of God's kingdom. No. He was angry, and he did nothing. Nothing. Well, what Absalom told Tamar not to take a heart, he takes to heart, verse 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Belhazor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, well, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom takes this to heart, but he's not going to reveal his hand by being hostile towards Amnon. He's gonna be indifferent towards him for two years while he hatches his plan for vengeance. And he decides he's gonna throw a party and invite all the king's son, including the king. He invites David, hoping David won't accept the invitation, and he doesn't. So he can turn to David and say, well, how about the crown prince? Can he come in your place? Can Amnon come? And at first, David questions it. Why? But Absalom's done a really good job of hiding his bitterness for two years. So David doesn't question any further. And finally he relents, and Amnon can go. But, but notice, just as Amnon used David to get Tamar into his clutches, so Absalom's using David to get Amnon into his clutches. Like father, like son. Now, verse 28, uh, then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you, be courageous and be valiant, so that servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son arose, sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Just as David tried to cover his sin by getting Uriah drunk, so Absalom's going to get Amnon drunk, just as David had uh, Uriah killed by the hands of his servant Joab, so Absalom's going to have Amnon killed by his servants. Like, the, the, like it's a, almost like a mirror image of his father. Like father, like son. Well, the king gets the news. And at first, he believes all of his sons are dead. But there's Jonadab. And Jonadab says, I'll oh, take heart. 
It's not that bad. Only Amnon is dead and Absalom's fleet. Jonadab is there once again trying to ingratiate himself into, into power with leadership and that sort of thing. And you got to kind of wonder, like, I thought he was like Amnon's friend. He doesn't seem to mind so much that Amnon's dead. Then uh, in verses uh, 34 through 36, we see the king's son's return. Uh, we know that Absalom has, has, has fled. He's gone to live with, uh, with his grandfather on his, on his mother's side. He's going to be there for three years, and, and we're going to pick up that story in, in a couple of weeks. But let's look together at the final part of 2 Samuel 13, verse 39. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now, biblical scholars have labeled this, this particular part of the passage as actually untranslatable. Uh, there is so much about this, this, this passage in, in the ancient Hebrew that's so confusing that they've labeled it as un- untranslatable, and so translators have, are forced to do one of two things with it. The first is what we see here in the ESV that carries this connotation of, of, of David loving Absalom, desiring to reconnect with him, right? And after Amnon, he, he grieves for him, he desires to reconnect with his son. However, there's a, a, a different view of the translation, which, which kind of goes more like, like this, and David's desire to go out against Absalom was over, for he was comforted concerning Amnon's death. I think the latter is the better, but I don't know. The reason why I think it's the better translation, if David's heart went out for Absalom, he wanted to go get him, why didn't he? And when Absalom returns, we'll see that in a couple of weeks, he will come back, and when he comes back, David refuses to see him. So if, if David really wanted to reconnect with Absalom, why didn't he? Um, the second reason I say that is based on David's response to Amnon's abuse of Tamar. He was angry and did nothing. I think that's a pattern that repeats here. Absalom killed Amnon, and David is angry, but he's doing nothing. Angry and doing nothing. Now, back in verse one, we saw, it begins with Absalom, the son of David. And then it says, Amnon, the son of David. Now, uh, that, that language um, can be used in two ways. One, a biological connection, a biological parentage, but it could also mean a spiritual parentage. You, you look at, say, uh, um, I think it's Psalm uh, 89, and then you see there's this, the language that is used there is the son of wickedness. Like, to be a son of David... It means to reflect what David's like. And here is Amnon and Absalom, and they are mirror images of bad in their abuse of women and murderous intent. They're sons of David in this way. And what we see in David, unfortunately, is a godlessness. Now, what do we do with this? I believe this is in our, our Bibles for a reason. And I believe centrally it's in, it's in our Bibles in order to point us to a need for a better father. 
to point our, us towards, towards God. But I think it's also here to make the statement, don't do nothing. Don't do nothing. We see Jesus uh, open the Sermon of the, of the Mount up with something called the Beatitudes, and he begins by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what that essentially means is blessed are people who know their spiritual poverty. In other words, they know their sin. They know their offense. They know how fallen short they are. They, they know how they've missed the mark. They know that the, the unclimbable mountain of righteousness is in before them, and they can't make it. They know their sin. They can point to it. They can identify it. They can name it. Blessed are those people because they can move into mourning. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. To address your sin and to mourn over it, to lament over it so that you can be comforted. So don't do nothing. The first challenge is look back. Look back. Have you looked, taken a hard look at your parents or your grandparents, maybe even your great-grandparents, and asked the question, what was their besetting sins? Like, what is it in your, in your parents or your grandparents, what were the, the unsubmitted parts of their heart? How has that affected you? I've mentioned this book a lot, Pete Cazero's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality is very helpful in this. But looking back in your family of origin and identifying that, it's important. It's helpful. Because then it leads to, to, to the next part is, is look present. Look present. Look inside your own heart. What are your besetting sins? What are the things in your heart that are unsubmitted to God? David lived his life in so many ways he was submitted to God except for this one and that one way destroys his family. What are the unsubmitted parts of, of, of your own heart? See, to, to recognize that is to be poor in spirit. To recognize that, to identify it, to name it so that you can mourn for it. You can repent of it and by the spirit be comfort of it. But, but, but look into, into the present. Now, for all of us, that's a challenge. For all of us, what are your besetting sins? What are the things you don't give God access to? What are the things you don't give your spouse access to or your closest friends access to? When people confront you on that, you get defensive. What are those things? That's for all of us. For men, particularly. Men, this passage is for you. It's for me. And you look at this, man, oftentimes we idealize physical courage. We, we, we love to watch war movies and superhero movies and, and to see uh, the dramas unfold of, of a man willing to be physically courageous in, in, in the face of the, of the possible loss of life or limb, to be able to step into the brink and to, with physical courage, uh, save somebody. We want to be that hero and we, we long deep down for that one moment that we might get, that one chance in life where we can be a hero to be physically courageous 
And yet every day we make thousands of little choices that would enable us to be morally courageous and we don't do it. Little choices about saying no to our flesh. Little choices about saying no to the world around us. Little choices about saying no to the enemy. Little acts of moral courage where in our words to the people around us to the daughters of God around us and the children of God around us in our words to be tender, in our touch to be gentle, in our eyes to be loving, not leering, not staring, not undressing. Thousands of little moments of moral courage. Don't do Nothing. Don't waste your life waiting to be a hero while ignoring all of those little moments throughout your life to be morally courageous. Are you using the strength that God gave you to hurt or to protect? Do you have an eye that watches out for people? Are you careful in regards to where your kids go? Who they spend the night with? What they'll encounter there? Are you protective in that way? Lastly, looking present, if you're here this morning and you have been sexually abused, whether that's male or female, don't do nothing. What Tamar did that was courageous was she expressed what had been done to her up until the point where she was sequestered away and was not allowed to take it to heart. But she expressed what had been done to her. That the hashtag MeToo movement has enabled many, many people to do that, to come out and with a voice say, this is wrong and it was done to me. But you see, it shouldn't end there. See, the, the way out of desolation and the way to freedom, it involves forgiveness. To be able to forgive that individual. And, and I know, I'm up here, I'm a middle-aged white guy who's never experienced that kind of pain. And who am I to tell you, just go forgive. I mentioned that Iranian woman to you uh, who, who uh, asked this question, God, why did God give men such power? She was able to escape Iran and went to Britain. And there she encountered a, another Persian woman who uh, introduced her to Jesus. And as her relationship with Jesus grew, uh, there was an obstacle for her and that was to identify with this Christian God as father. And she said that, that in Islam, uh, there are many, many names for Allah. None of them mean father. Now, because of her relationship with her earthly father, highly abusive, she really struggled with calling God father. She could call God mother, but because of what shaped her. Um, she writes this, but God wanted to reveal himself to me. 
He did this with total patience and gentleness. As I studied the Bible, I saw the grace and love of the Father. As I prayed, I felt the attention of the Father. As I worshiped, I felt the embrace of the Father. He healed my past, my present, and my future, and has transformed me. And then she says this, he even enabled me to truly forgive my earthly father. To be able to go from desolation to freedom, to forgiveness, you need a better father for that to help you. And the way that he helps you is he sends us a better son. Amnon was a son of David. Absalom, son of David. Jesus was a son of David. Only a very different son. A holy, righteous, perfect son. Who God sent into the world to live that perfect life. And he did not abuse commit adultery or murder not not even in the intent of his heart perfect so that he could go to the cross and be a sacrifice for us you see we we look back at this passage in 2 Samuel 13 and we ask the question what would be the human response to these things had we encountered them David's response is to get angry but do nothing but another response would be to get angry and kill Kill the offender. And that's from a human perspective. That's our two options, right? Either ignore the offense or kill the offender. But God in Jesus Christ decides to do both and neither. That in Jesus Christ, he comes and he lives that life and he goes to the cross and he suffers in our place. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might know the righteousness of God. He goes to the cross and the wrath of God is poured out on him. He becomes the adulterer. He becomes the murderer. You see, the reality is, as Jesus made this also clear in the Sermon on the Mount, that there is no one who is not guilty of adultery and murder. By his standard of the law, not just to commit the acts with your hands, but to desire it with your heart, makes you guilty of that. He goes and he pays. He dies in our place. And the sin is punished. And the guilty go free. This is the grace of God and this is the gospel. And this is the relationship that you can have that will not only set you free from the sin that's been committed against you, but the sins you have committed against others. It's found in a better father. And he sends us a better son. And if you will embrace him and if you will love him as he first loved you, then freedom awaits. I'm gonna pray. If you're here and you're a house church leader, man or woman, would you stand ready to come? I wanna invite any of you, if, if you're here this morning and you would like to first of all say, something has been done to me and I'm not gonna hide it anymore. But I also don't wanna stay there. And, and I want to know this freedom. If you would like somebody to pray with you, then when I pray, would you come? And for you house church leaders, will you keep an eye on it? If you see someone up here, I ask that if it's a woman, a woman come and pray. If it's a man, a man come and pray. Will you, will you do that, house church leaders? Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your love. This story is in many ways godless, but you were still present in it. You do not rejoice over the suffering of people. Your heart breaks. And all the while, you point towards the solution, towards justice, towards mercy, towards grace. Father, you made a way to heal and forgive. And Lord Jesus, you willingly came and paid the price that that took. I pray, Holy Spirit, that if there's anyone here who needs your comfort, your tenderness, your words of mercy, your soft touch, your soft eyes, that they could come and they could experience that through your people. In Jesus' name, amen.